Exodus chapter 11. Only 10 verses, so please listen carefully as this is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague, yet one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before us is your holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word, and we need to bow before you again and acknowledge you as our sovereign king. You display yourself as the one true God throughout this passage. You've reminded us that in your hand is the destination of kings and nations, the heart of pharaohs and rulers. Teach us that truth for our own lives as we're called upon to trust you in the midst of trial and in the midst of uncertainty. In your certain and good and wise providence, even when all its wisdom is not apparent to us, show us that we need a rescuer, a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. We need the salvation he offers. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know if many of you uh, are Civil War buffs. I know we've had a few here and there. And if you've ever read the actually famous writings of Douglas Southall Freeman, he is the author of the classic three-volume, very thick books called Lee's Lieutenants. He also wrote a four-volume account of Robert E. Lee himself and a wonderful biography of George Washington. But he's most well-known for Lee's Lieutenants. And uh, he was a newspaper editor and a writer in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And uh, his father, obviously he lived a long time ago, these books have been around, for a long time. These are not new or current works. Um, but his father actually fought in the Civil War in the Army of Northern Virginia uh, during the Civil War, as they say in the South, the War of Northern Aggression. Or uh, my personal favorite, in the time of the late unpleasantness. 
So uh, if you have spent much time in the Deep South, you may have heard that before. Anyway, as Douglas Southall Freeman was writing Lee's Lieutenants and this four-volume biography of General Lee, he spent many a Saturday talking with his father about the events of the battles, particularly uh, with the Army of Northern Virginia. And all the other battles, as of course the Army of Northern Virginia actually ventured north a few times uh, in the Northern Territory. And over and over again, his father would say to him, now son, don't you ever belittle the Army of the Potomac. He's referring to the Northern counterpart, the Northern Army, which fought against the Army of Northern Virginia. And he continued, don't you ever denigrate the cavalry of the Potomac. The cavalry of the Army of the Potomac, Potomac was the finest cavalry ever to ride. And the Army of the Potomac was one of the greatest armies that ever walked the face of the earth. And then he would always add, except for one, the Army of Northern Virginia. But he had this grudging respect for the Army of the Potomac. It may have something to do with the fact that they won, I'm not sure. But I thought about that because the Egyptians, we've come to a point where the Egyptians have this grudging respect for Moses here in Exodus 11. They can't like him. They've been through all these disasters, nine plagues. They've lost livestock and fields and crops and just all sorts of terrible things have happened to them. And yet, in this passage, Pharaoh now stands alone in opposition to God. The people of Egypt are beginning to see. We read in verse 3, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. You can almost hear them discussing the matter. You know, this man Moses is actually a noble man who's come against us. This is a noble man demanding that his people be released from slavery. And the servants in the house of Pharaoh are beginning to say, this man, Moses, he's a man of dignity and character. They're beginning to have a grudging respect. And Pharaoh is left by himself, standing alone. Over and over again in Exodus, we've seen God display his sovereignty in and through the plagues. I'm going to look at a few more ways he displays his sovereignty in the plague that we're looking at uh, this morning. You'll notice, of course, that this final plague is announced, but in the passage we've read, it's not implemented. It won't be implemented until uh, the people are in the midst of worship at midnight on the Passover. We'll look at more closely next week. But for now, the tenth plague is announced it's the culmination of God's judgment against Egypt. And all this is happening before Moses leaves. If you remember, we saw last week, at the very end of chapter 10, we read, Pharaoh said to him, speaking to Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And so the, what we have in chapter 11 is Moses' final comments before he leaves the presence of Pharaoh, where he has announced this tenth and final plague, and then he dismisses himself in hot anger 
against Pharaoh. And that brings us to today's passage, Exodus 11. And the first evidence we have here of the sovereignty of God is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So here we see the announcement of one last blow against Egypt. Not only that, we see this strange directive given uh, by God to Moses, to the people, to plunder the Egyptians, to receive from them silver and gold jewelry. And God's sovereignty is clearly shown here. How is God's sovereignty shown here? Good question. Well, in at least two ways. First, it's shown because verse 2 is a fulfillment of prophecy. And we'll look at that in a moment. But second, we see God's sovereignty in the esteem that the Egyptians have for the children of Israel and especially for Moses. From the very start, it's clear that this is the announcement of the final plague. God says to Moses, one more plague. So immediately, preparation for departure begins. It's time to leave, and all the people begin to prepare to leave. And the very use of the word plague here, the very manifestation of all the various kinds of plagues that have been brought against Egypt is very important, indicates God's sovereign control of nature. Remember, for the Egyptians, the gods were nature personified. And so when Moses repeatedly tells us that God controls nature over and against the Egyptians, it's this visible manifestation of God's sovereignty over the gods of Egypt and thus over Egypt itself. But look how specific this prediction is, verse 1. Very specifics given here emphasize the sovereignty of God. Look at this repeated phrases. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And what's the result? Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. He's not going to drive out some of you. He's not going to drive out most of you. He's going to drive out every last one of you. And so God indicates through these particular predictions, just how sovereign he is, he can tell you exactly how it's going to happen. It also indicates that the Exodus isn't just a concession on Pharaoh's part. God has worked this whole story up to the point where Pharaoh is going to be begging for Israel to leave when it's all said and done. He's going to demand they depart from Egypt. In fact, he's going to facilitate their departure. And so just as Moses has demanded, all of Israel will leave just as God himself predicted. And Moses himself will be brought to surrender, and he's going to demand their departure. Notice also, if you look at verse 2, for the first time in the stories of the plagues, Moses is instructed to speak to the people of Israel. He's spoken to them before the plagues began, but during the plagues, the focus has all been on Moses and Pharaoh, uh, on this contest ultimately between God and Pharaoh and God and Egypt and God and the oppressors of his people. 
But there hasn't been any dialogue between Moses and the people of Israel. But now that they're preparing to leave, Moses needs to deal with internal affairs. And so he speaks to the people. And this so-called plundering of the Egyptians is described here in verse 2. And it's a fulfillment of something that God had said to Abram hundreds of years before. Well over 400-some years ago, we don't know exactly 450, 480, a long time. In Genesis 15, God had told Abram, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. And now God instructs Moses to tell the people to ask their neighbors to give them silver and gold jewelry. There's a really easy application here. We just take another offering, you just put in all your silver and gold jewelry, we're good. No, not going to do that. But the really odd thing about all of this is the people do it. They do it willingly. They're like, sure, go ahead. Here's my watch. They don't have watches then. But, you know, whatever they had, silver and gold jewelry, they just gave it to them. When do you normally plunder someone? You plunder them after you've defeated them, after you've conquered them. All those great narratives in the historical books, the Old Testament, Israel wins them, great battle. What happens? The armies go back out in the field and they plunder all the defeated and dead people. And they take all their stuff. They go into the city they've conquered and they take all the valuables. Or into the village, whatever it is, the opposing army. After you've defeated them. But here, children of Israel go to their neighbors and just ask for their silver and gold jewelry. And the neighbors give it to them. Why? What's this signify? It's odd. There's no way to read it and not think that it's odd. And yet, I think it's a sign of the total conquest of the sovereign God over Egypt. Can you sort of imagine this? Will this make the plague stop? You can have whatever you want. Just make it stop. It's indicated again on Passover night, which again we'll look at next week. We get to Exodus 12. We'll be shown again that the children of Israel did this. They asked for these things. They asked for these possessions, the silver and gold jewelry, and they received them. And by the way, I think it's very interesting. You need to realize the things which the children of Israel are received from Egypt, are going to be used for both good and evil. In Exodus 32, which is like June or July, some of these things are going to be used to build the golden calf. In Exodus 35, which is probably July or August, some of these things are going to be used to build the tabernacle of God. Same thing, different uses. The things aren't evil, their uses are. And so the taking of these things and the use of these things in and of themselves didn't involve Israel in sin. However, the wrong use of these things, particularly in the case of the golden calf, did involve Israel in sin, as the right use of these things brings glory to God. 
Notice also verse 3, the Egyptians have come to esteem Moses. Even Pharaoh's servants have great regard for him. This, of course, is also part of the fulfillment of God's promises and God's purpose in the Exodus that the Egyptians would know the greatness of God. He said this all along, even before the plague started, all the way back in Exodus 7. He said, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so now as they've begun to esteem this one who is his, he sent as his representative, we're beginning to see this fulfilled. The Egyptians have a grudging respect for this one who's been brought against them. And more specifically, has been brought against Pharaoh. And now God's wonders have been brought before his eyes. And though his people have seen the wonders, and they've come to have this grudging respect for Moses and for the children of Israel, Pharaoh himself is unmoved. Is that not a picture of a hard heart? I mean, you have to wonder. Had it not been for Pharaoh, what would the effect of these plagues been upon Egypt? What spiritual havoc did the hardness of Pharaoh's heart reap upon his own people because he wouldn't repent? Well, here you see the sovereignty of God, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the esteem of the Egyptians, and even in the isolation of Pharaoh, all of Pharaoh's support is beginning to crumble. And he stands alone against the Lord, against the sovereign king, against the one true God. And you notice how the Lord's moved everybody out of the way? We've come to a point where it's really God and Pharaoh. Even Moses is departing the stage, so to speak. And now the total focus of his attention is going to be on this one man, the Pharaoh of Egypt, who is the representative of rebellion against God and against God's sovereign rule. He's become the representative of the oppression of God's people. And you kind of see God clearing the battlefield in order to deal the death blow against this one who opposes him. God said he would do it, and now he's done it. So the first evidence we have of the sovereignty of God is that God keeps his promises. The second evidence we have of the sovereignty of God is that God judges with justice. God judges with justice. Starting at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Well, now Moses is instructed to tell Pharaoh about this revelation, this tenth plague is heralded to Pharaoh in hot anger. 
love that phrase. I don't know why. It's just so odd. It doesn't appear very often. And again, we see something of God's sovereignty here. God's sovereignty is shown in his fearsome judgment. And it's shown in his discrimination and his conquest and everything he's doing here. These words, look again at verse 4, seem to have been delivered to Pharaoh after his final defiance at the end of Exodus 10, when he said, get out of here. If I see you again, I'm going to kill you. Pharaoh will not let Israel out of Egypt. And so how does God respond? What does God announce? You won't let my people out of Egypt? Then I'm coming to Egypt. I'm coming into the midst of Egypt. Friends, that's not a happy announcement. The presence of God may be sweet to those who are reconciled to him, but it is a terror. It is an awesome thing when God comes into the presence of his enemies. I wrote to you earlier in the weekly email. If you don't get that, please see Dave or Andrew. Make sure you get on the list, get the weekly email. But I quoted from Hebrews 10.31. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the living God is announcing here in verse 4 that he's coming to Egypt. Pharaoh will not let Israel go, so God comes to Egypt. It's interesting, of course, this whole scenario is going to come about at midnight. By the way, when the Hebrew says about midnight, it doesn't mean roughly midnight. It means at that very time. That's when I'm coming. I'm coming at midnight, and you'll know when I arrive. That's a particularly terrifying time for the Egyptians. You know, we've already said... Ra, their sun god, is their greatest god. And nighttime is a picture of the battle between darkness and death and chaos against light and order against Ra and the sun god. And midnight is the pinnacle of that darkness. And so it's the most terrifying time for the ancient Egyptians. And God says, that's when I'm coming to visit you. I'm coming at that exact time when you recognize yourself as most vulnerable. And then in verse 5, the curse is announced. All the Egyptian firstborn shall die, from the greatest of the Egyptians to the least, even including their cattle. God will strike down the firstborn. Even Pharaoh will be directly impacted. And as if it, it even needs to be pointed out, verse 6 tells us the anguish of this event would be unparalleled in Egyptian history. I asked my Sunday school class to teach a high school class, you know, uh, how many firstborn do we have? And there were three or four. We're not fond of this passage at all. You know, especially it's like, hey, we're going to miss you. You know, we'll just have like kind of like a joint funeral for you guys. And, you know, some of the second board were kind of like, yes. Um, I don't know what was going on there. Didn't really get to that. But the, uh, you know, it really hits home. If you're a firstborn, particularly if you're a firstborn son, you don't really hit home. We're talking about you. And there's a real irony in the midst of all of this sort of death and darkness. Look again at verse 6. It says, There'll be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Moses is telling us about several cries that have gone up in the book of Exodus. All the way back in chapter 2, the people of God cried out for deliverance. 
It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard that cry. Then we move on, Exodus 5. The people of God cried out to Pharaoh for relief from all their burden, oppression, slavery, bondage. It says, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? And Pharaoh turns a deaf ear to them. Now, shoes on the other foot, Egyptians cry out to their gods, and no one will hear them, for they've created their gods themselves. Their gods are idols and not real, and this cry of anguish will be met by a deafening silence, and no help will come. Just as Egypt has done to Israel, so now God will do to Egypt. There's one more thing here in verse 6 I want you to think about, be aware of. You know, early Christians, they gave their exposition of Scripture before they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week. They often went back to Exodus 12, which Reverend Dorse is going to preach on next week, and expounded that passage just before taking the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that next week. But I want to ask you a question to get you thinking about that before we get there. Is it possible that this passage, Exodus 11 and 12, could have been read in the presence of those early Christians, could have possibly been lost on them, that their liberation came at the expense of the Son of God himself, who is the one to lift up a loud cry. Matthew 27, twice we're told on the cross, in the darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now think of it. The early Christians, they've gone through the Lord's Supper. They've just heard the Exodus story recounted. They've just heard the cry of Egypt being lifted up. And now they hear the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, alone on a cursed tree in the middle of the darkness, receiving the wrath of God, lifting up a loud cry. We started with Israel crying out. We're about to see Egypt crying out, and it will all culminate with Christ crying out. Think about that as you prepare for next week. And there's very important distinctions here. Look at verse 7. Made very clear. God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Israel is going to be unscathed, and the Egyptians are going to see that. They're going to know that. In fact, Moses uses this unusual figure of speech to emphasize how completely protected the people of Israel are going to be. He says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. You know, sometimes you can surprise a dog, and a dog will give give you that sort of deep guttural sound. It's kind of like, stay off my turf. We've had dogs for a long time. And uh, at some point, all of my children, and now all of my grandchildren, uh, have learned that particular growl. And yes, some of them learn that growl the hard way. Perhaps a few of them are still learning that growl. But it's said here, not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast. And this, I think, is also a little sort of backhanded slap at another Egyptian god, because the god of death, the god of embalming, 
in Egypt was the God called Anubis, and he took the form of a dog. And here Moses says, not even a dog will growl against my people, not a real dog, and not even your false god dog. By the way, Moses is pointedly directing these words at Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. Look at the last part of verse 7. That you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That you, singular, Pharaoh, may know the Lord makes a distinction. It's not simply that God's making the distinction. He's making the distinction and he's making it clear to Pharaoh that he's making the distinction. He's not just doing it. He wants Pharaoh to know exactly what I'm doing. That I've chosen my people for mercy and your people for justice and judgment and destruction and condemnation. And he's making that clear. And in verse 8, Moses continues by saying that God will make Egypt to be servants. Now the shoe's really on the other foot. And they're going to come and beg Israel to leave. And Moses is saying this directly to Pharaoh. Can you imagine this? I mean, here's Moses. He's in the house of the most powerful monarch in the ancient Near East. And he says, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me. Not bowing down to you, bowing down to me and say, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I'll go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. After this announcement, Moses leaves in a rage. Let me ask you another question, why? Why do you think Moses would have left in a rage after that exchange? I think there are several good answers. Some have suggested it's in response to Pharaoh's threat. After all, Pharaoh's just uh, told him, if I see you again, you'll die. So maybe he's angry about that. I could understand that. You know, after all these warnings, after all these prophecies, you know, all this uh, doom that's to come, there's still no repentance on the part of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh responds with that threat. If I see you again, I'll kill you. And Moses is angry about that. But I wonder if Moses' anger is found not so much in the threat against him, but in his own frustration at the stubbornness of the unrepentant Pharaoh's hard heart. I mean, he would rather bring down a nation than bow the knee to the merciful and sovereign God of Israel. And Moses is incensed. His anger is hot. He sees the sinner about to bring down judgment on his own head. And I wonder if we see here a glimmer of Moses' own hopes for mercy for Pharaoh, for Egypt, and his frustration over Pharaoh's hard heart. Beloved, there is nothing that shows God's sovereignty like his judgment and like his election. Is there any wonder that those two things are, are things that people are so quick to try to deny? We live in a day and age where professing Christians, left and right, do their best to deny God's judgment. Oh no, there won't be any hell. Love wins. It's heaven for everybody. That's not the teaching of the scripture. And we'll do anything we can to get rid of God's judgment. Even professing Christians, quick to dismiss the doctrine of God's election. Well, that's not fair. You know, that argument doesn't carry much weight with the Apostle Paul. He's like, who are you? Who are you to question God? To Romans 9, what shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. There is nothing that shows God's sovereignty like his judgment and his election. So the first evidence we have of the sovereignty of God is that God keeps his promises. The second evidence we have of the sovereignty of God is that God judges with justice. And the third evidence we have of the sovereignty of God is that repentance is a blessing. Repentance is a blessing. Last two verses, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So here, at the very end of the chapter, we see Pharaoh dead in his sin, dead to God's warnings, and again, we see God's sovereignty, particularly now in his dealings with Pharaoh. The summary at the end of Exodus 11 is needed because what was said at the end of Exodus 10. The negotiations are now over. Here is the final judgment of God. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh won't listen, so God will do wonders. Wonders will be done in Pharaoh's sight, and he will not believe, and he will not relent. And verses 9 and 10 bring to a conclusion this final sequence of the plague saga, the Exodus plague. And I say the Exodus plagues, because these plagues are all going to be repeated, almost all of them, and in full measure, and with much worse effect in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. There God sends his angels to pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath against those rebelling against him in the last judgment. And those seven bowls of God's wrath start with harmful and painful sores which came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The sea became like the blood of a corpse. The rivers and the springs of water became blood. Sound familiar? It's followed by heat, fire, darkness, unclean spirits like frogs. And then we read Revelation 16, verses 18 through 21. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Is it all starting to sound familiar? It should. It's the Exodus plagues magnified to such a great extent they're no longer called wonders but wrath. And sadly, oh so sadly, we read there in Revelation 16, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And Pharaoh, just like the unrepentant people of Revelation 16, refuses to repent. And that should remind us 
first off, repentance isn't produced by hard circumstances. Repentance isn't produced by showing a person the terror of judgment. You know, there's people who think that if you can just cause someone to repent by showing them hell. Well, my friends, God has shown Pharaoh hell, everything but the fire, and there's no repentance. Why? Because repentance is a gift of God. It's a grace. It's a mercy. It's a work produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's not one commonly bestowed. And so we see here the deadliness of sin and the hardness of an unrepentant heart as Pharaoh sees the judgment of God displayed before him and he will not repent. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the announcement of the plague is here in Exodus 11. The implementation of the plague is in Exodus 12. And what's significant about that? I mean, three of the plagues God didn't announce at all. The third one, the sixth one, and the ninth one. They just happened. Why didn't he just have this one happen? What's going on that's so important with the tenth plague? Well, the Passover lamb is slaughtered and eaten. The Passover meal is a worship service. And as that worship will go on in the house of Israel, God comes for judgment and salvation. Think of that for a moment. Over and over and over and over again, God's been telling the people of Israel, Moses has been telling Pharaoh, I'm redeeming you so that you can worship me. I am saving you out of Egypt so that you can serve me. I'm delivering you out of bondage in order that you can worship and serve me. And Moses is telling Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may worship me, that they may serve me. And ironically, but I think perfectly fitting, when does the judgment of God come against Israel, against Egypt? When does the deliverance of God come for Israel? In the midst of worship. And as the sacrifice is being lifted up, as the Passover lamb is being slaughtered, then the angel of death comes. Judgment, salvation are accomplished with sacrifice and plague. God will not be trifled with. Those who resist him and mock him will not have the last laugh. And he will redeem his people in worship for worship. One more theme to pick up before we close. And that revolves around the meaning of the firstborn the meaning of the firstborn. God's already told them about this plague. This is not new. It should not be a surprise. God told them about the death of the firstborn all the way back in Exodus 4. There we read, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. We haven't gotten to the plagues yet. We haven't gotten to any of this stuff yet. And yet God has told them exactly what's going to happen. He has shown Pharaoh his true situation. I mean, essentially God is telling Pharaoh, how would you feel if somebody was oppressing your firstborn, the apple of your eye? How would you feel if somebody was seeking to take his life, what would you do? You wouldn't be passive. You wouldn't sit back and watch it. Well, neither will I. I'm not going to be passive. You're enslaving and oppressing my people, and now I'm warning you. Let them go. 
It's the warning. It's a brilliant warning. It explains the injustice of what Pharaoh is doing. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the entire world, and he hardened his heart. God sent nine plagues. Blood, gnats, locusts, things that destroyed the crops, things that destroyed the livestock, darkness. Nine warnings to Pharaoh. And after many chances, and after Pharaoh had trampled all those chances underfoot, every time he made a promise, he'd gone back on it. And in the end, God says something. And we read it right here in Exodus 11. And I think it's actually a spine-chilling message. Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. God sends out the destroyer. He sends out the angel of death. He sends out his full justice. With the first nine, God sent a horrific plague, but Israel's land wasn't subject to it. The rest of the Egyptians suffered, but the land of Israel, the land of Goshen, where they lived, was not subject to any of the nine plagues. But in this case, the thing that's so surprising about the tenth plague is the destroyer comes for everyone. God tells the Israelites, the destroyer is coming for everybody. You can only be saved if you take some evasive action. In other words, the destroyer will come not only to the Egyptians, but to every single door, unless there's something on that door. And it's because the other plagues were not really full justice. The other plagues were warnings. They weren't commensurate justice for all the violence Pharaoh had been doing to the Israelites for 400 years. In a sense, God is now letting Judgment Day intrude in this one controlled situation. He's bringing Judgment Day down on this land for one brief moment of time. He's literally giving people what they deserve. But he says, in this case, the Israelites will get it too unless they do something. But what's he tell them to do? He says, don't just think... Just because you're Jews, the angel will pass by. Oh no, you must put blood on the door. You must take shelter under the blood. Keep the Passover, sprinkle the blood, and so they did. And the angel of death came and passed over their homes. But the firstborn, from the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the slave girl who sits at the loom, they died. Can you think of any parallels to this in the New Testament? There's a bunch. There's a lot. I'm just going to look at a few of them. Start with Luke chapter 2, verse 7, the Christmas story. It's a great story. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. It's the first time this label of firstborn has been given to Jesus. Matthew goes further to describe the flight of Jesus and his family out of Egypt uh, after he was born in order to fulfill prophecy in Hosea 11, which says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So Matthew sees Jesus as following in the pattern of the original firstborn son, the people of Israel. The Apostle Paul takes it a step further. The book of Colossians directly connects the power and honor of Christ to this title of firstborn, Colossians 1, verses, starting at verse 15. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's clear that Jesus was the firstborn physically, and he's the firstborn in terms of honor. He's the firstborn of all creation. This is not by accident. God redeemed Israel through the death of the firstborn. And in the New Testament, God redeems his people again, now from the slavery to sin, by the death of the firstborn. We're going to look at this further next week, but it's not by accident. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. The symbols, the imagery of Exodus is meant to point beyond themselves. The death of Jesus is this divine combination of the death of the firstborn and the death of the Lamb of God in one moment, which leads to the deliverance of his people from the slavery to sin. Divine justice must be served for the consequences of rebellion through sin. God cannot and will not forgive sin without some kind of payment. Death, either the death of the child or the death of a lamb, comes to every household in Egypt. In the same way, atonement uh, has to be made for the forgiveness of sin to be granted. God said to the Israelites, you have to kill a lamb and eat the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. If you do, the justice of death will pass over you when it comes. The justice will pass over you and you'll be saved. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is also described in firstborn terms. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Furthermore, Hebrews even uses firstborn terms to describe all those who've been redeemed through Christ. Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. In other words, those who receive the death of this firstborn become part of the assembly of the firstborn. The followers of Jesus share in his victory. His victory becomes the victory of all those who put their faith in him, Jesus is the firstborn son, the Lamb of God, the Savior of his people, and the one from whom all blessings flow. You see the amazing meaning here? The story of the death of the firstborn is meant to warn you, and it's meant to invite you. It's meant to warn you that there is a sovereign God who still rules the universe and still owns everything. There is a holy God who defines right from wrong and cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And Exodus tells us that God always wins. Always. He is the one true God. He is the sovereign king. But it also invites us. It invites you to see Jesus as the firstborn son and the lamb of God who can cause the judgment of God to pass over you. And the invitation is to run inside that blood-stained, blood-covered house where there is atonement for your sins and complete forgiveness. The invitation is to receive the firstborn son who died so that you can be delivered, so that you can be rescued, so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be saved. 
there's a warning and there's an invitation. And sooner or later, you must respond. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. Help us not to repent just with words, but from our heart. And to run to Christ to find pardon and forgiveness and lead us in greater worship. Reveal yourself as our rescuer, our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God bless you. We'll see you next week.